just want you to know that I got nothing original today. I got nothing interesting. I have a wee bit of an assignment for you, though. You okay with that? I shouldn't have asked. I want to read a scripture that you are familiar with, but I don't want you to look at it. I want you to hear it. I want you to kind of drink it in and uh, let it speak to you, if, we can, if I can say it that way. It's from John chapter 21. Jesus has been tortured to death. He has risen again. He's with his apostles, and he's making himself available and known, and they're trying to figure this all out, and they don't know where they're going or where they've been. It doesn't make sense. And they're out fishing one night, and he helps them catch some fish. And you know the story. It's near the end of John. And he starts a little fire on the shore, has some, some toasted bread and some fish, and he makes a breakfast for them, which is not anything like I would do if I were him and I was leaving and leaving these people behind. But anyway, he has a a talk with Peter, and you know this story. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. And then the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus had asked him three times, do you love me? So he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you, want, where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, who was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who's going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he said, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain until I return, what's that to you? You must follow me. You know that story very well. Your assignment when you leave here will be to love God. Right? And you're really good at that, aren't you? This is easy. Oh, great. He'll let us out of here early maybe and we can just go and love God. No, I want you to think about what that means. It's more than just, yeah, that feels good. I have a confession to make. And I know it's going to make enemies here, but I have to say this. I want you all to know, just because I'm an honest person, you all need to know that I hate flip-flops. There's, there's no sense to flip-flops. They flip and they flop. I don't know, they make this, they make this sound, right? And my wife has some, and I'm, I'm embarrassed to walk with her in a quiet place because there's this noise beside me someplace, right? And, and I, I don't understand why people wear those. I guess they want to be noticed. That's the only thing I can figure. But um, anyway, I'm anti-flip-flop. I just want to say that it's out there, and I don't care whether you like it or not. Okay? How many of you still love me? How many of you hate me? Sorry. Sometimes it's easy to follow. I will not follow in flip-flops. I will not do that, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but that's just, that's just how I feel about it. Some people, I, I love watching people in a crowd I love walking, watching people come in late for church. It's a little hobby I have. Some people come in 
and they're completely oblivious that there's anybody else in the building. Have you ever seen that? And they come in, sorry, can I do this? They come in, and they, I literally saw this during prayer one time. Somebody came up to the front, and he's like, oh, we can sit over here. And he's t- motioning his wife to come down. And she's saying, no, I don't want to do that. And he's saying, okay, we want to sit here. And they went through a whole thing, and I was watching them, of course. And it was fascinating. And I thought, don't you know there's a crowd of people here? Apparently he didn't. Another time I was in, um, my wife sings in a choir, and there was, we were in this fairly large auditorium. There's two, two or 3,000 people, and I sat near the front. And these four older people than me came and sat here. And the guy who sat right beside me, he, um, he was just happy to be there. And as I was sitting there, he turned and he wanted to see who else was in the crowd that, that he knew, you know. And he, he had his, it was winter time, so he had his scarf on. He took his scarf off. And while he took his scarf off, I'm sitting beside him. And he's swinging his scarf at me, right? He didn't even know I was there. And he had a big puffy winter coat. And he's taking the coat off. And the arms are going like this. And he took that off and put it in the back of his chair and took up my arm space. And that was annoying. But the worst part of the whole thing... I don't know how to say this. He, he was, he, he was completely. He well, what happened was, he was standing there, and I was sitting, and he was standing, right there. This is his bottom end, right here, and I'm standing, and I'm thinking, do you not have any but self awareness at all? Because. <laughs> And I thought, no, you can't have my territory. And then pretty soon I thought, no, I'm going to take it back. They thought, no, I won't take it back. <laughs> so we had this whole thing going on, right? Completely oblivious. I mean, what a cool thing to be able to do that, step into a crowd of people and not care. I can't do that. If I come in late for church, I kind of, you know, do this and I slip in the back. It's interesting. Some people follow. Some people lead. Some people don't care. This is an interesting story because Jesus is saying to Peter, you know what, all this other stuff, it doesn't matter. You follow me. End of story. Regardless of what the crowds do. The Church of England commissioned a study uh, a few years ago because of dwindling numbers and that sort of thing. And their strategy was to discover the best way to connect with people for the church. So this survey was to find out what people's attitudes truly were toward church and toward God and that sort of thing because they believed, in essence, that everybody has a spiritual hunger. And so we need to tap into that spiritual hunger. So they conducted the survey, and here's what they discovered from the survey. When it comes to religion, non-religious people are fairly happy. Isn't that surprising? Maybe it's not. They discovered that people actually don't really like church that much and uh, don't really care about church. They discovered that people really don't really think about life after death. doesn't matter. God's going to work it out. If there is a God, if not, I guess I'll die. They discovered that, believe it or not, and it's a hard thing to say at a place like this, believe it or not, people didn't even really think much about God. So you know that, that void inside that every person has that we talk about as, as Christians? That void that's inside of there? That's our ace. That's our high card. That's our go-to thing. Everybody has that void inside. And yet this survey said people don't have that void. It's been filled up. Have you ever run into that? That was one of my frustrations with pastoring 
people really don't even care about what we do. We come and we worship, but people out there, they don't really care. That's a hard thing to handle. It's a hard thing to figure out. Some people called me when I was pastoring to, uh, to marry them. And so we, we exchanged some voicemails for a while. And I agreed that I would meet with them and talk about it. But on one voicemail, the last thing that the, the groom said was, he said, um, the only thing is, we really don't want anything about God in our marriage ceremony. Yeah. So I kind of called back and said, I left a message and said, I guess, you know, I'm a Christian minister. You know, I'm sorry. This is kind of what I believe it's about. And uh, you'll need to find somebody else. They called back and said, no, we've been talking about it. We'd like you to marry us. And in fact, his wife had been raised, I guess, Catholic. And she remembered a chapter in the Bible that's about love. And she would really like that to be part of it. And so we agreed. I met with them, and uh, it worked out okay. I was able to marry them. But let me say this. If we live in a culture where people don't care, who do you think is to blame? Are they to blame? They're just living. They're just following. They're just doing what they do. I believe that we have ourselves to blame. If the world, if our culture changed while we were on the watch, who's to blame? I guess that's us. Somebody said in the 20th and 21st century church, somebody said, while we were looking out for ourselves and guarding our territories, the world started looking elsewhere too. Poll after poll tell us that people feel that Christians, especially evangelical Christians, are hypocritical. They're judgmental. They're too political. They're more interested in numbers and in church than actually being interested in people. Now, you might say, ah, that's not true. Think real hard about it. Think about how you approach growing the church and leading people to God. So culture moved on. A very recent Gallup poll, just in the last week or so, named the least trusted institutions in in the U.S., They were public school, television news, uh, banks, and number four were churches. That doesn't make sense. Or does it? So is that the end of it? There's no hope. People don't have a void. People don't care. Somebody said that people do what they feel, not what they think. I read that a few months ago, and that really stuck to me. People do what they feel. And I I grew up in a church where emotion was a big thing. And I wouldn't always fit in that category. And I always felt out of place. So coming to Tyndale, coming to places where I could learn and think was a wonderful gift. But at the same time, we make life judgments based on how we feel rather than how we think. I was on vacation last week. And uh, we had to be back home on, on the Friday for a wedding rehearsal. And... I just happened, the TV just happened to be on and Dr. Phil was on. I I never watch Dr. Phil because I have a job and that sort of thing. I try to be as conscientious as I can be. And uh, so I I don't watch him. But I I couldn't help but notice there was this girl. I think her name was Brenda. But the whole program was about how she dresses provocatively. She dresses older than she looks. She picks up guys 
who are much older than she is, and her mother didn't know what to do with her, and so she's on Dr. Phil, and she was sort of, she had an attitude even on the television program, and she was sort of smirking and laughing at Dr. Phil, but there came a conversation, I want you to hear this conversation that he had with her. He said, tell me about your values. And she said, well, how I look is really important to me. It makes me popular with my friends, and actually, I real, guys really like me too. And Dr. Phil said, but what do you like about yourself? And she said, I like how I look. He said, besides how you look, what else do you like about yourself? Nothing, really. Dr. Phil said, how does that make you feel? Sad. You see, I think that people do have that void inside. We just, people just fill it with other things. But it's still there. And it just becomes kind of a, a lovely skin over top of the turmoil that's really inside. The outer skin is happy. But inside there is more. People act and think according to what they see. They follow the crowd, so to speak. They do what everybody else is doing, and they assume that that's what happiness is, that's what peace is. People follow what they believe success is, and you all know this. But I also want to say that I think that Christians do that same thing. Again, I was raised in church. You know what? Lots of Christians are Christians because they prayed that prayer someday in the past, and because it's kind of the culture they've fallen into. And so it's really easy to just kind of do this stuff. And it makes them feel good. But I wonder if there is a void inside of a lot of people who call themselves Christians. Maybe we should just stop following the crowd, if I can put it that way. Put aside the production, the business. Put aside the performance and the marketing and the mechanics of faith. And just learn again to love God. To realize what it means to take up our cross. To live in a real dying, hurting world in a real dying, hurting way and let people see God lived out in us in our pain and in our joy. I've been married 36 years. I know about pain and joy, let me tell you. <laughs> it's not easy. But you know how when people get married, they're in love and it's really, ooh. Uh, you know what? When you're newlyweds, I've told the guys in, in our department this, you have no idea what love is until you've been married for a while. And you've fought the battles, you've been together, and you've stood together. It gets better and better. That's how our relationship, I think, with God should be. Love is something you, you wrestle with, and you work at it, and you, fo you form it according to how the two of you form it. And it becomes something bigger than you had imagined that it could be. What would happen if all the Christians in the world really did wrestle with life, really did love God, and really did bless people? What if the Christians in the world really did bless everybody they came into contact with? It might be just a little bit different in our culture. That couple that asked me to marry them and, and uh, didn't want God in their ceremony, I did marry them, as I said. A few months later, he called me and he wanted to get together for coffee, and so we did that. And he asked me if I would be his spiritual mentor. Can you imagine that? I said, no, I don't have time. 
No, I didn't say that. No, no. <laughs> we got together for the next number of years, once a month or so, talked about life, talked about God, had coffee. But his wife, there was something wrong, something had happened. She didn't want anything to do with it. In fact, she, she called him a Bible thumper and made fun of him at family gatherings, all that kind of thing, for years. But, last summer, actually, yeah, a year ago, we got a call from them. They invited us over to their home for dinner. And his wife, they'd had a baby. And his wife looked at us, looked me in the eyes and said, you know, I don't know what to think about God and all that kind of stuff. But I, um, what's his name? Ethan. I want Ethan to know about God. So how can you help us so we know how to teach him? And I said, what if we got together and had meals and talked about God? And she said, I'd love that. We get together as, a, as two couples and talk about God. There's nothing more fun than that. I mean, I love painting, Scott, and I love doing other stuff here. That's not why I do this. It's amazing. In this story, Jesus asks us, asks Peter, to live among the sheep, to live in the real world, to feed them, to talk to them. I'm expanding a bit. Jesus just wants us to be with people. To influence them. And how do we influence them? If there's some kind of love for God inside of us that's doing this, we don't have to preach any sermons. We just have to talk. I have to tell you, I'm not a superstar. The last few years of my life, I can barely have any kind of extended conversation without me saying something about God or Jesus. It just kind of comes out. And it's not offensive. But that's who I am. And people aren't offended. It's a good thing. Jesus wants us to love our neighbors as ourselves. You know that. Jesus, remember, he saw the crowds and had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. I'm tired, to be honest with you, I'm tired of angry Christians, of judgmental Christians, of Christians who have an opinion on everything and are short on grace. People are not targets. They're people. People are not enemies if they're sinful. They're people. And then Jesus says, Do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And Peter has to respond to that. I want you to hear something that Henry Nouwen wrote. You may be familiar with it, but I thought it was appropriate. He said, Look at Jesus. The world did not pay any attention to him. He was crucified and put away. His message of love was rejected by a world in search of power, efficiency, and control. But there he was, appearing with wounds in his glorified body to a, new, to a few friends who had eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. This rejected, unknown, wounded Jesus simply asked, Do you love me? Do you really love me? He whose only concern had been to announce the unconditional love of God had only one question to ask. Do you love me? The question is not how many people take you seriously, how much are you going to accomplish, can you show some results, but are you in love with Jesus? Perhaps another way of putting the question would be, 
Do you know the incarnate God? In our world of loneliness and despair, there's an enormous need for men and women who know the heart of God, a heart that forgives, cares, reaches out, and wants to heal. In that heart, there's no suspicion, no vindictiveness, no resentment, and not a tinge of hatred. It is a heart that wants only to give love and receive love in response. It is a heart that suffers immensely because it sees the magnitude of human pain and the great resistance to trusting the heart of God who wants to offer consolation and hope. It's pretty cool to be part of something so big, so amazing, so awesome that you can't wrap your head around it. And yet to know at the same time that somehow I fit in. Somehow I'm a piece, I'm a tile in the mosaic. We're part of God, we're part of God's family, and yet you fit in somehow. And all that God asks in return is some love. Receiving it and giving it. Leonard Cohen, as you know, is a a songwriter, a Canadian, who's uh, become very famous for his music. He has a song that's been covered by a number of people and uh, bands and so on. Um, it's called Hallelujah. Do you know that song? Pretty cool, isn't it? I want to just recite a couple of verses for you, okay? So you hear some of the, the feeling of Hallelujah. One verse says, Maybe there's a God above, and all I ever learned from love was how to shoot at someone who outdrew you. It's not a cry you can hear at night. It's not somebody who's seen the light. It's a cold and it's a broken. Hallelujah. He's writing about broken love, I think. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. You say I took the name in vain. I didn't even know the name. But if I did, well, really, what's that to you? There's a blaze of light in every word. It doesn't matter what you've heard. The holy or the broken. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. He does it better than I do. Now, he's written a whole bunch of verses, and other people have written verses, and he's, mished, he's flip-flopped them around. He's done all kinds of things. But there's one verse that's always common to them all, and it's this. I did my best. It wasn't much. I couldn't feel, so I tried to touch. I've told the truth. I didn't come to fool you. And even though it all went wrong, I'll stand before the Lord of Song with nothing on my tongue but hallelujah. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Hallelujah, hallelujah. And the ending of the song is 12 consecutive hallelujahs. You know what hallelujah means. Praise praise God, praise Yahweh, the eternal, self-existent one. What is the song about? I have no idea. Does Leonard Cohen know what the song's about? No, he doesn't know. He's admitted he doesn't know what it's about except that it came from inside of him, expressing something he didn't know how to express. It's a brooding, mysterious, moving, breathtaking, addictive, restless, awe-inspiring song when you sing it, when you hear it. It's music that raises your soul, whether you're musical or not. And people all over the world love it. Why do they love it? They don't know why. Saints and sinners and atheists and Christians sing the song and love it. Maybe for different reasons or maybe for the same reason. There is a void. 
There's something that we want to feel. There's something we want to express. There's that need to have something bigger than we are. I just want to challenge you. People do what they feel. What do you feel? Do you love God? Do you feel Him at all? Even as Christians here, it's really what you want to do. It's really what the world needs you to do to love your Lord. We're going to ask you to um, listen and maybe sing along with Colin, that, the chorus of that song. I just want that to be our prayer. Just an expression of I don't know what and a recommitment just to love our God.